1: This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to
2: Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, speaking to you from uh, New York City, Queens, in fact, the borough of Queens uh, in the middle of the COVID-19 epidemic. Nothing to brag about there, but we are well and uh, doing well, Mrs. Taylor and I, um, and uh, we hope all is the same with uh, with all of our listeners out there, that you're surviving Uh, this very unfortunate time. Uh, I do want to uh, let you know that I'm the author of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and uh, would very much like to invite you to try subscribing. Go to MiningStocks.com to do so, MiningStocks.com, or you can call our office in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. Do that during normal hours, and uh, you'll probably find someone here. I would also encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter. What is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? Chen also does a great job following the gold markets. Um, He trades more actively than I do, uh, but he also is uh, doing extremely well, has for a number of years, in the biotech sector. He kind of switches off between sectors, some that looks better than others. He weighs his investments more heavily on one side or the other. He's also an energy investor but I'm sure he's uh, stepping on the sidelines right now waiting for an opportune time uh, sometime in the future to pick up some energy stocks it's a bloodbath in that sector right now but uh, Chen as most good investors are ready to buy things when the right when the time is right so it's uh, chenpix.com go there to sign up for Chen's letter what is Chen buying what is Chen selling Uh, we also like to remind you of Michael Oliver's letter uh, olivermsa.com michael's not with us today but He uh, provides ongoing uh, information that's very, very helpful to investors uh, to help us know whether we're in a major bull market or a major bear market, and uh, very helpful to yours truly, which is why we have him on every other week on this show. Uh, I do want to thank all of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel, and also uh, encourage you to send along whatever comments you might have to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com, questions, the number four, taylor, At gmail.com. And of course, we do want to thank our sponsors because without them there would be no show. Our sponsors for this week's show are in resources, Ely Gold Royalties, Great Bear Resources, Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, Novo Resources, and Sitka Gold Corp. I've titled today's uh, show The Destructive Forces of Bank Credit. Alistair McLeod, John Williams, and Quentin Henning are my guests for today's show. Commentators routinely confuse the deflationary effects of a contraction, of a credit contraction like the one we're going through now, with the inflationary effects of central bank policies designed to offset those deflationary or contraction uh, forces. But as Alistair explains, central banks always ensure their ultimate, uh, they st- ultimately, the stimulus is greater. So inflation, uh, not deflation, is always the ultimate outcome. And we have most certainly seen a great deal of inflation, not only in living expenses, which are, in my view, far greater than our government reports, but most of all, we've seen inflation in the financial markets, where stocks and bonds have been in the greatest bull market bubble, I would, I would suggest, ever seen in the United States. Alistair will help us explore the mind of a banker to help us understand the autonomy, or the anatomy, I should say, of the credit bubble cycles and why they always end up in tears and ultimately in inflation. But as Alistair has pointed out, this current market decline is not your father's decline. It is more like your grandfather's decline of the Great Depression. It might not be unreasonable to consider this credit contraction to be more accurately described as the greater depression because of the unusual nature of a government-mandated shutdown, which is certainly nothing that a country described as the land of the brave and the land of the free would naturally engage in. Beyond the economic loss, the biggest losses we may be facing in the future is our freedom, which, as Ron Paul noted many years ago on this show, is all we need, really, to regain prosperity. If we are free of government control, we will be free to engage in the activities the good Lord gave us, the gifts to engage in. But if we are locked down by government, we most certainly are not free, and we as a nation and as a people will ultimately perish. It will indeed be interesting to watch the outcome of Sweden um, following uh, their the way they're handling this uh, Chinese virus epidemic. Sweden has informed its citizens of how to take care of themselves, but it has not imposed lockdown mandates. Now, perhaps Sweden will end up with the biggest problem of any Western country because of its laxity. Or... Just perhaps, by allowing its citizens to get the disease and build up antibodies, it will be in a far better situation than the United States and most other Western countries that have, in fact, locked down and in the process destroyed their economy. Time will tell, but there is no doubt in my mind that the repressive government action here in America means that this is no longer the America that our founding fathers had in mind when they risked their lives to wrestle these lands away from King George in 1776. One very possible outcome for the current economic demise is hyperinflation and the destruction of the U.S. currency. Certainly Alistair MacLeod believes that, but also independent economist John Williams also believes the United States dollar is rapidly heading towards an inflationary demise and into the dustbin of history. I did a special interview with John Williams, which you can listen to by going to my YouTube channel. That's J. Taylor Media's the YouTube channel. Or you can go to the podcast page at jtaylormedia.com John is predicting a negative GDP of 8% for, court, for the first quarter of this year and between 30 and 40% negative GDP during the second quarter. I mean, these are just mind-boggling, disturbingly mind-boggling numbers. He believes that we will see jobless rates of around 22% fairly soon, And before we bottom out, somewhere around 40%. I hope and pray John is wrong, but he is an independent economist who isn't paid to say nice things, as most people are that you'll see uh, in the mainstream media. To try to combat uh, all of this misery, of course, uh, our government is spending trillions of dollars, and the Fed is funding those dollars, and more than that, printing money out of nothing to save its bank shareholders uh, which is why Alistair and John and others think the days of the dollar and other fiat currencies are limited and why the price of gold is headed for the moon when measured in worthless fiat. By the way, John has provided a chart that shows the price of gold fits exactly with his adjusted inflation numbers, which is why I believe uh, that I, which is, uh, those numbers, I believe, are much more accurate than anything that the government provides. And in fact, On that same chart, John shows the uh, relationship between the government's inflation numbers and the gold price, and it's way, way too low. Inflation is more like, according to John, more like 10% annually than the 2% that the government claims. And those of you um, who are not really truly very wealthy might have noticed prices of food going up. Certainly, have noticed university degrees, uh, uh, healthcare costs, and a whole lot of other things. Well, the government plays all kinds of games with those numbers, as John Williams will explain to a certain extent in my interview, which, again, you can listen to by going to the podcast page of jtaylormedia.com or at my YouTube channel, jtaylormedia. In order to protect our wealth, I have long maintained placing savings in gold rather than fiat. That's what you should do, and on a more speculative basis, have maintained owning gold mining companies as well. Yesterday, I pre-recorded Quinton Henning, who heads up the exploration program of Irving Resources. My recording of Quinton will be played right after the break in just a few minutes from now, right after our first commercial break. Um, Now, this morning, Irving released some assay results, and apparently the market was a bit disappointed with Irving's share price falling by nearly 9%, at least that's where it was when I first uh, prepared to come online uh, for the show now. One listener to this show sent me a message uh, which stated, and I quote, It does not look like uh, Irving drilled into the boiling zone at the center as they told the shareholders they were going to do. Can you please ask Dr. Henning to explain what took place there and why we didn't get drill results from the boiling zone? I'm sure there is a good explanation, but at the moment it leaves us shareholders wondering why the deeper drilling we were anticipated does not seem to have taken place. Well, actually, uh, apparently the listener didn't read the press release thoroughly because the news release states that, in fact, the boiling zone was hit in hole number four, Hitting the boiling zone apparently doesn't mean much to uh, to lay listeners, to lay people, because uh, they're looking for juicy, really high-grade uh, gold results, uh, which they might have expected to hit in the boiling zone. But to Quentin and other geologists, uh, they are seeing exactly the kind of rocks they need to see to keep pressing forward. You should also always keep in mind that uh, a, a project is never uh, confirmed or uh, denied on the basis of a few drill holes. And and also remember that the early drill holes were very, 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 very good. Um, as Quentin also explained to me, uh, they had permits to only, uh, they had permits, for the locations they were permitted to drill into only allowed one drill hole into the boiling zone. And they were in the process of getting other uh, other locations, uh, permits to drill from other locations, which will allow them more shots into these deeper boiling zone areas. Well, from my perspective, the sell-off of today really provides an opportunity to pick up some more shares, which I hope to do uh, in the very, new f- very near future. Well, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away, because when I come back, Quentin Henning will be with me to explain why the prospects for Irving Resources are very positive. So uh, don't go away. I'll be right back with uh, Quentin Henning.
3: Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia.
1: Welcome back to
2: Turning Hard Times into Good Times, I'm your host Jay Taylor and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dr. Quentin Henning. He's here today to give us an update on Irving Resources and its very unique projects in Japan. Dr. Henning is a director and technical advisor to the company and he leads the company's exploration efforts in Japan along with some of Japan's top geological mines. Irving uh, Resources uh, trades in Toronto under the symbol IRV, and you can buy it in the States as I have under the symbol IRVRF. 54.8 million shares outstanding, fully diluted, 59 million only. Management uh, has a good chunk of that, about uh, 15 or 16 percent on a fully diluted basis. And Newmont, Newmont Mining, owns 9.34 percent. The company is uh, pretty well off cash-wise. Thank goodness for that. It's got around 11.6 million in Canadian money. Uh, This is a very exciting story. that I've been following. I own the shares myself that I've purchased off the market, and really due to some unique circumstances, uh, the prospects that Irving has look very exciting to me, and that's what I'd like to uh, talk to Dr. Henning about once again. Thanks for joining me, Quentin. Absolutely. You know, uh, first of all, let me just ask you, how is Irving dealing with this uh, Chinese virus that is causing so much suffering around the world? I know that, I know that your projects there are pretty much to the north in Hokkaido. Uh, located in a more remote area of japan but what can you tell us about are you able to continue working there through this uh through this pandemic
0: yes that's a very good question it's a question for most junior mining companies these days and i'm happy to say that yes we are continuing to work and we're able to do it safely Um, hokkaido as many people know was affected uh probably late february early march most uh most pointedly, like the increase in cases was sharpest during that time frame. Um, they've, by and large, got things under control. They have seen a, a bit of a resurgence in just the past week or so. Uh, as anybody that's watched the news around Japan knows, uh, there is uh, still a great deal of caution. Abi has declared state of emergency for the country. But the Japanese uh, have different levels of, of uh, state of emergency. Mm-hmm. Is, is basically you know to enforce uh, strict guidelines like the as far as uh, social distancing and things like that go uh, the Japanese have a, a long experience with uh, viruses you know and, and so forth if you look back even the in the past 20 years uh, they've kind of ridden this rodeo uh, several times mm-hmm. you know so they have pretty good systems in place to uh, you know and, and people uh, effectively you know, adhere to guidelines, so mm-hmm. it's a very effective solution. Mm-hmm. Now, um, we are operating in a little town called Omu. There are no reported cases there as yet, uh, nor near nearby us in Mombetsu, which is the, the next largest uh, community. So, we are working safely. Our team is, you know, monitoring their health every day. We've got the drillers, geologists, and, and helpers of various uh, people. Uh, so, we you know, they monitor their health, they monitor the situation in the local community, and we're, we're ba- basically currently working semi-autonomously, and we'll call it, uh, you know, from the rest of uh, the area. So, you know, effectively, we're, we're socially isolated. That's mm-hmm. You know, and we're also taking precautions as far as having food and supplies on site, you know, drill supplies, stuff like that, so we don't run short. Uh, we have all every intention to keep drilling and we have all the things we need for drilling for the remainder of the year. Uh, we have lots of targets lined up so uh, you know our goal is to, to keep this going uh, as long as we're we're able to and abide by whatever guidelines are set in place.
2: No yeah, good excellent well that's
0: uh, I know it's it's spotty in the industry yeah.
2: some some people are pretty much shut down, others are going. You know, fifty percent, and and it sounds like uh, Irving is able to pretty much carry on, close to what you would have done anyway. Maybe that's right. No, well, that's, we're very fortunate, very fortunate on a number of counts as far as uh, the shareholders of this company is concerned. Uh, from what I can see, I, you know, you've you've been remarkably successful in hitting numerous high grade veins at OMU uh, since you started drilling. Uh, there, I think, last year it was, but, uh, for example, in November last year, the, year, the company announced that, uh, and I quote from the press release, all eight widely spaced diamond drill holes at Omu Center encountered significant gold-silver mineralization, including notable vein intercepts in seven of eight holes. Uh, end of quote. And there were some very high numbers attached to that press release. However, many of these veins are fairly narrow. So at first glance, some investors might say, well, yeah, they're kind of high grade. Uh, what does that matter? Because they're narrow veins. It's going to cost too much to mine them. Uh, how would you respond to that? Because you have a unique situation there. And I, I want our listeners to understand that.
0: Certainly, look. That's uh, that's probably the most important aspect of our business model is how we're going to uh, deal with these veins or treat these veins. Um, in mining, uh, when you you know there's costs involved from you know exploration all the way through pouring a gold bar, okay. And a lot of the costs that are involved in mining uh, are around not just the the actual physical mining part, but the processing of material. Uh, you know, in fact, processing dominates the costs of production in many many different mines. Uh, in the case of of Irving, we are exploring for what are high silicon, basically, uh, quartz-rich veins that have uh, a reasonably high precious metal content. And the goal is is to mine and use that material for smelter flux. In smelters, they need silica to to effectively melt the. The copper concentrates, or lead concentrates, or whatever base metal they're working with, and to help that melting process, you need a, a great deal of silica. Okay, so a smelter, an average smelter in Japan, might use anywhere from a hundred thousand up to a million tons of silica per year. Well, what better way to to process your your gold ore than to deliver it as smelter flux? You know, we can basically have uh, offtake with these smelters and deliver a material that is suited for smelter flux but the gold and silver are recovered through the smelting process. So for example, when you chuck a piece of, of these gold veins into a smelter furnace, the gold and silver, as, as the rocks melt and the copper concentrates melt, the gold and silver end up in the copper mat or the copper uh, metal are recovered through electrolysis uh, downstream, but the gold and silver are effectively 100% recovered in this process. It's a wonderful. Uh, scenario and, and the smelters pay uh, they pay not only for the gold and silver but they pay for the silica itself. so you're getting value out of that so people wonder well how on earth are you gonna mine uh, a narrow vein? look the Japanese have been doing this for for many many uh, eons now you know they mine narrow veins or they have traditionally there's one mine main mine in Japan still operating Hishikari. And the veins there average about, you know, 0.5 to 1 meter in width. Most people don't know that, and it's a very famous mine. It's very high grade, but but the veins are uh, narrow. They're not uh, huge stonking things. Well, when they mine it, they bring it out. They aver- actually upgrade the material through hand sorting at Hishikari. In our case, uh, it's interesting because the host rock, the rock around the, the veins is, is silica rich uh, or silica-flooded volcanic rock. So we actually... Um, the the veins themselves are encased in high silica rock. There's also low grade, you know, gold silver values in that in the surrounding rock. So it's not like you're mining uh, no grade or waste. It's it's all basically material that could go towards smelter flux. So I I really don't see uh, too many issues here. I think uh, I think given this model and the fact that we can mine and, and direct ship this material. Makes a very good, will we'll make a very good economic case. Yeah, it sure sounds like it, and you don't have to
2: worry about capital costs for building a mill, all of the cost and time that's involved in getting permitting and all of that sort of thing that to build a mill and uh, uh, those facilities. So it, it's just, Correct. it really is a very exciting story, I think, and of course, we're looking for more and more information coming out. Um, I believe, uh, you know, well, this this was recorded on the 20th on monday and i believe um if i'm understanding you may be expecting some news uh to be made public tomorrow is there anything you can tell us about that
0: yeah look we'll have some more results we've been drilling in omu center uh, since around mid-january we've got uh you know assays are slow this co- this coronavirus or chinese virus uh, has slowed things down uh, right. but we're still operating the labs are still operating we will get uh more results, you know, trickle in through time, but we do have some results that we'll put out. Uh, I think people will will be pleased to see that it confirms the, uh, the current uh, thesis at, at Omu Center. And we've got uh, several holes that we've just completed that look quite interesting as well. We'll, we'll talk about those in the news release. Uh, in the meantime, we have moved the drill. The, the snow has been fairly light this year, so we've been able to move the drill back up to Omui which is where we drilled hole 10 last year and had a, a large number of veins in that hole. We're going to drill a hole, or we're, I should say we're drilling a hole uh, parallel to that about, uh, let's see, I think it's around 80 to 100 meters east
2: mm-hmm.
0: of hole 10, and this will be our second test of that critical area. We're going to see those veins uh, extend uh, you know, laterally uh, out into the resistive uh, feature that we see off to the east. Mm-hmm.
2: Quentin, I just uh, a question just came to my mind. I'd like to ask you about in in light of the economic scenario globally now that's resulting from this uh, Chinese virus. You've got many different smelters there in Japan. You know, I don't know how many. They're they're dotted all over the country. Uh, but I'm wondering, might there be less of a be less of a demand for flux? Uh, and and I ask that I, uh, I I know that there are people that are saying they believe that there's they're very bullish on some of these base metals now because of the infrastructure and all that sort of thing that's that's uh, projected to take place. But
0: uh, do you have any any thoughts about that? You know, the best I can tell you is, um, you know, from the people I know at some of the major mining houses in Japan, um, there doesn't, I have not heard of any indication there's planned slowdowns or, or uh, you know, taking anything offline. Um I don't know how copper prices and other base metal prices will be affected by this current situation. Uh, you know, these are metals that are vital. Um, I'm not going to say you know they're impervious to uh, you know to the effects of the market, you know, economics. But uh, but I'll tell you the uh, likelihood that the, the smelter industry, you know goes the way I say the oil industry or something, I think is is less so and I would say that there will be demand. Even even if it does slow somewhat over the next year or two, we're probably looking at uh, you know taking Omui and or sorry, the Omu project as a whole mm-hmm. uh, forward within that time frame and you know in terms of exploration and stuff. So I think I'm not too worried about too how worried. it affects us directly.
2: Well, that certainly uh, makes a lot of sense,
0: as I understand it. The demand
2: for flux uh, has been very, very robust there, and, and so they're willing to pay you, uh, for the flux itself, so it's it's a, it's all a good story. I just had to ask that question because it's certainly something that's on the minds of a lot of people right now in in terms of the global economy. Uh, but again, on the other hand, there are those that are saying they believe uh, that we may be entering an inflationary period where there's going to be a huge demand as as governments try to engage in in various projects to try to keep the economy going. So anyway, the the really good news is it seems as though you have a very low cost low-cost gold mining story here that should do very well from what i can all i can see and it's certainly one of one of my top picks quentin uh, anything else you'd like to add
0: um i would say that uh, just to reiterate we have a full year's drill program laid out you know we have lots of lots of drill targets and so forth uh we're making as good or better progress right now drilling in terms of speed as we did last year so that's all good um i'd say that you know the Sticky wickets will be laboratory assays. I think they're just going to be somewhat slower, uh-huh. and the reason for that is what you're seeing is a consolidation of of the streams of samples into certain labs, uh, and other labs are going offline. So you know there is a, you know the demand overall demand for assays has decreased, but you're seeing a lot of that business fun- funneled through certain laboratories. So I think that they're going to be absolutely shocker uh, with business. So you know. You know, people have to be patient, but look, we'll report geology as we see it, and uh, I'm not too worried about, uh, about the system. It looks quite robust. Right, and indeed, uh, certainly all the reasons
2: to be optimistic in terms of the gold price and the gold markets as well, from what I can see. Quentin, I want to thank you so much for spending your time with us today, and uh, all the best, and we'll try to keep up with Irving uh, going forward. Thank you very much, Jay. All right, folks. Well, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away. Alistair McLeod will be with me to talk about the destructive force of bank credit and uh, how you can turn that negative into a positive very possibly. So uh, don't go away. We'll be right back with Alistair McLeod.
1: resources trading under gbr on the tsx and gtbdf on the otcqx is a gold exploration company focused on their 23 kilometer wholly owned dixie project in the prolific red lake mining district of ontario Having recently made multiple high-grade gold discoveries, GBR is fully funded to complete a very active 200,000-meter drill program through to the year 2021. Stay up to date on what has been considered one of the best-performing exploration stocks in the last two years by visiting greatbearresources.ca.
0: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times is Good Times. I am your host, Jerry Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Alistair McLeod with us once again. As most of you know by now, Alistair is the head of research at Gold Money, uh, and you can read his very insightful weekly commentaries at goldmoney.com. Goldmoney.com, And uh, I believe they usually puts them out about the middle of the week or so. Um, He's Alistair is with me today to talk about some of the very dangerous market conditions that are swirling around us uh, during this Chinese virus pandemic intentionally I would suggest intentionally named COVID-19 to disguise its origins but that's another issue I suppose we shouldn't venture into uh, on this show. Uh, but but it, deceit and deception is certainly the world of politics, and no matter what area of your life you're talking about. Our focus here is mostly on economics and the markets, uh, so uh, that's what we'll stick to. Uh, really, when it comes to looking at the dangers, uh, understanding the markets, I don't know of anybody I trust more than Alistair MacLeod, which is one of the reasons he is one of our most frequent guests here. Thanks for joining, joining me again, Alistair. That's my pleasure, Jay. So good to talk to you, always good to have you, and I know you're certainly one of the more popular guests on our show. So I'd I'd like to um, focus on, I think it was your April 9th uh, missive uh, titled The Looming Derivative, well actually it had to do with the the destruction of bank credit, I guess that's what, the destructive forces of bank credit, then I'd like to get to one you wrote later. Uh, more recently, I think April 16th. That's the looming derivative crisis. If we can venture into that one a little bit as well, and how it might impact the gold prices uh, that we're looking at every day. But but going to your uh, April 9th missive, um, in that in the overview of that article, you state you started out by saying, and I quote, commentators routinely confuse the deflationary effects. Of a contraction of bank credit with the inflationary effects of central bank policies designed to offset it. Central banks always ensure their stimulus is greater, so inflation, not deflation, is always the outcome. End of quote. Well, I'm certainly in complete agreement with that, but in looking back at the results of 2008, you know, most people believe the central banks actually allowed us to survive that very scary event. Uh, and that the fiat monetary system is, is you know, if you believe what you're told, alive and well, nothing too much to worry about there. The banks are supposedly very well uh, capitalized this time around, so never need to worry. Uh, but, of course, it's not always that simple. And what we're told on the surface is one thing. But can you explain why you think most people believe other than just propaganda? I mean, what where are they going wrong? Why are the commentators wrong? in suggesting that everything is honky dory
3: well uh you referred to the 2008 crisis um and certainly the american banks are better capitalized but you've only got to look and see what the bank position is in europe to realize that actually europe is very dangerous i mean globe what they call globally systemically important banks, the GSIBs, the very big banks, the ones which cannot under any circumstances be allowed to fail, uh, are meant to have buffers. But if you look at Deutsche Bank, uh, the um, balance sheet is 22 times shareholders' funds you look at barclays in the uk 22 times shareholders funds you look at ubs in switzerland 17 times shareholders funds these major banks are undercapitalized they cannot absorb much in the way of losses and that is the problem when bankers are greedy and everything's going nice and hunky-dory then they will expand their balance sheets they will take on extra risk because you have extra risk, you get better margins. Uh, And that is a process that accumulates over the credit cycle. But then you get to a point where it all starts going wrong. And we saw this uh, with uh, liquidity problems arising last September. Now, this is some four or five months before the COVID
2: Mm -hmm. crisis
3: actually hit us. So Mm -hmm. we were already running into, uh, if you like, a bank lending problem. The banks were beginning to be reluctant to lend. And when they start, uh, let's say, uh, they stop looking at, uh, you know, the profits that they can make by expanding their balance sheet and they're greedy for that money, when they turn around and say, we're worried about risk, then, you know, what really informs them is 22 times shareholders' capital. You know, the gearing works in reverse. If you lose, um, I mean, look at Deutsche Bank, if they were to lose 4% of their assets, their shareholders would be wiped out. Uh, And uh, the same with Barclays and nearly the same with UBS. So you can see how bank directors can literally turn on a dime from greed to abject fear. And that is actually what we're trying to Deal with, uh, And while that's happening, of course, the Fed and other central banks have this Covid crisis suddenly foisted upon them. They're trying to get money into the payments chains. They're trying to stop industry from falling over. And of course, they expect the banks to transmit the money to these people. But the banks are reluctant to do it. So you've got this this uh, problem that the Fed wants to expand the quantity of money, which it will do come hell or high water. And the banks are reluctant to transmit it to uh, their riskier customers. So, you know, the small and medium-sized enterprises that banks lend money to Mm -hmm. are not really going to get that money easily, which is intended for them from the central banks. It's not just the Fed, it's the ECB, it's the Bank of England, it's the Bank of Japan, and so on and so forth. Yeah.
2: Well, uh, Alistair, can't they, I mean, one of the things that, that they're trying to do here, and I presume in other Western countries as well, is to uh, directly put money into the bank accounts of citizens. Um, you know, we're seeing uh, you know how many billions of dollars already are being transferred to small businesses. I think today there's supposed to be a second part to that, uh, another, I don't know how many untold billions of dollars that are being transferred right into the bank accounts. And I know that, um, you know, people that we know have gotten their $1,200 per person into their bank account already. Uh, is, is, is that one way around I mean you're saying you can put the money into the banks but the banks don't really want to lend to people that don't have jobs to companies that don't have any revenues so is the is the way to do it then the way they're trying to do it to get around it is to just put money directly into the hands of Individuals and why can't they do that in unlimited amounts?
3: I I think we're looking at two slightly different issues here Mm -hmm. Uh, As far as the banks are concerned if someone let's say a small business and let's let's keep Individual people out to one side for the second But if a small business owes the bank money and the bank sees increased risk in the business environment Mm -hmm. Then any money that is given to the bank to pass on to that business as far as the bank is concerned Thank goodness for that. We've got our money back goodbye oh. so that's the first problem okay mm-hmm. now we're looking at individuals and this gets us into a completely different problem we're talking helicoptering money right and uh so if you get a family of four there's twelve hundred dollars per adult mm-hmm. and then there's an extra thousand dollars for two children so you know this is this money is lovely because what it means is that uh you know whereas the family was living pay paycheck to paycheck they've just got that little bit of room but where do they spend it? I mean the answer has to be the only thing they can spend it is on the shops that are open and these are for necessities, these are for food and things like that but we have a problem with food and that is that the supply chains uh, are not working. I mean I hear that some extraordinary amount of milk is being dumped by American farmers Mm -hmm. because they can't get it to market. Mm -hmm. You've got um, you know sort of meat packing sheds uh, can't uh, send out meat because they haven't got the packing uh, stuff, if you like, to mm-hmm. pack all the all the meat in, y- y- mm-hmm. you know. So you've mm-hmm. got supply chain disruption, uh, mm-hmm. not only undermining, you know, sort of electronics and motor cars and so on, but the whole of the food processing uh, uh, industry. And so you've got a combination of money being focused spending money being focused on that industry and at the same time the industry unable to deliver so what happens to food prices well no prizes for guessing they go up and not only do they go up but they go up quite a lot and they continue to rise and uh, this is a problem I think which uh, is going to be uh, very much center stage in the coming weeks and of course the politicians always take the line of least resistance. They say, well, you know, we must stop businesses uh, profiteering from people's misery. So, um, you know, any businesses profiteering, we will go out and hit them over the head. Yeah. Or alternatively, you know, the next stage is they turn around and they say, we are going to put price controls on so that right. businesses can't profit. And then you're into the familiar um, territory, if you like, of just destroying the whole delivery process <laughs> because yeah. after all I mean prices are the result of the balance of supply and demand and if you've already screwed it up then you know sorry government but it's down to you it's not not down to the market and uh, to try and uh, whip the market you know treat the market as a whipping boy As we know, going all the way back to Diocletian, who wrote price edicts in stone uh, Mm -hmm. in about, I think it was 230 AD. And uh, the result was mass starvation um, because nobody would uh, dare, uh, you know, sell food to the public um, in case they were accused of profiteering. So shops shut down, people had to leave the cities, and they went into the country and foraged. (laughs) And, you know... But we forget these lessons of history, I'm afraid.
2: We, we do, and, and the, very simple, uh, the very simple laws of supply and demand, you know, uh, price gouging is the first term you hear all the time during situations, whether it's a hurricane or one thing or another in people. And, you know, what, what I think that's so, so short-sighted, sure, I guess there are people that will take advantage of other people. That's, that's unfortunate. But at the same time, to get people to do things that are difficult, sometimes you have to give them a, a monetary incentive. And there has to be, you certainly don't ask people to go, you can't force people to go out and do things that are costly to them um, if you're going to have free will. And that's what I worry about most, Alistair, coming out of this environment is a lack of our freedom or a lack of our ability to act in accordance with our own with our own needs uh, and do it civilly anyway. But I, I think you would agree that this, I mean, this we're facing something that's potentially much more, much more damaging, much more long-lasting and, and difficult than 2008, right? Uh,
3: yes, of that there is no doubt. Um, I, I, I reckon that before this virus uh, shut everything down, we were already heading for uh, something on the scale of the depression uh, of the 30s, preceded by a collapse of Wall Street when it lost 90% of its value between October 1929 and 1932. Um, I'm not going to go over that ground again, because I think your regular listeners are probably aware of my views on that. Um, What the virus has done is it's actually brought forward a lot of the problems which are already in the system. And, and, uh, of course, the Fed's only response to this, having reduced interest rates to zero actually before this happened um with uh, the yield on uh, US treasury debt under 1% for everything but the 30 year uh, bond with uh, negative yields throughout Europe and all the rest of it uh, there is only one tool in the monetary box that the central banks have and that is to print 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 the amount of printing that they um Uh, are about to embark on I mean they've already made the the announcement that they'll do whatever it takes or Mm -hmm. it will be infinite Um, but the amount that's required basically is the amount that's required to ensure that bond yields do not rise and that um, financial uh, markets financial assets do not lose value they are going to try and support the whole of the market system because if that goes then they will have lost and they will trash the currency in an effort to do it now the last time and i think i'm probably repeating myself from an earlier uh, um, uh, 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 broadcast with you yeah. the last time this really happened was john law mm-hmm. france 1720 and um the mississippi venture and yes. what he did was uh, in order to support the shares of his Mississippi venture, uh, he um, had to print and print and print money to buy those shares. He ended up not supporting the shares. That o- that, that overwhelmed him, and uh, he ended up trashing the currency. So by around about February, when uh, the merger of the Mississippi shares with the Banque Royale was due to happen uh, to the final demise of the whole system and the worthlessness of the currency took seven months. (laughs) Now, this is interesting because, um, uh, you know, if you really look at the way inflation's uh, progress, um of a fair currency you have a long phase mm-hmm. which can be many decades or it can be say four or five years mm-hmm. of um a gradual loss of purchasing power of the currency now the currency might lose um 99 of its purchasing power in that period mm-hmm. uh, but uh, then you get a second phase and that is when the people who use the currency wake up to what's going mm-hmm. on it's mm-hmm. not prices that are rising but the value or the purchasing power of the currency that is going to hell. And when they wake up to that, there is nothing a government can do, really within reason, uh, to, to stop the complete collapse of the currency. Yeah. So this is where we are. We are where John Law was in February 1720. Um, we are 300 years on plus a month or two. <laughs> and, and it looks to me as if we will be extremely lucky to have a fiat currency system operative by the end of this calendar year.
2: Oh, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty dire, I think, because in the meantime, you know that politicians are going to do uh, things that aren't within reason to try to hold it together. I mean, I, I don't know if it's the John Law incident or uh, in France, uh, I think sometime be- maybe before the revolution, uh, took place. In fact, there was a, a situation where the currency was getting out of hand. It was uh, hyperinflating, and the farmers demanded gold. As I recall reading, that farmers remanded, demanded gold for their payment rather than the fiat, and the government turned around, and anybody that owned gold was beheaded. I think, if I if I have the story right. So that was- people yeah go ahead
3: yeah sorry that, that that was I think you're referring to uh, the currency situation at the time of the revolution which was when yeah. uh, the French government issued a new currency called the Assignat yes and this theor- theoretically was uh, secured on property that the state had stolen from the Catholic Church sorry sequestered from the Catholic yes. Church <laughs> um, and uh, of course like every government before and since when they had this means of issuing something that got revenue in um uh, they issued some more and some more and some more so they collapsed the uh, they they collapsed the assigna, and then they had another bright idea we'll have a reset let's have a monetary reset mm-hmm. we'll issue something a new a new paper called mandat territorio uh-huh. and the mandat territorio lasted six months before it just went. Yeah. <laughs> so they well, went through I, two hyperinflations in the spite and in, in the space of um, less than a year.
2: Yeah. Well, I hear them talking about resets. Uh, James Rickards is my guest next week, and he talks about a monetary reset with SDRs uh, through the IMF. I think he thinks that's what they might try next. Any any ideas? Any any notion about that?
3: Well, it's just fiat in another guise. I yeah. Mean, <laughs> It's, yeah. You know, I uh, I don't know. I mean, I know James has uh, long thought that uh-huh. uh, this, this would happen. Um, and he's probably closer to the people, if you like, in the United States um, uh, establishment, yeah. you know, who who, who who would be thinking this way. Mm-hmm. But it won't last. I mean, they, they could well try it, but it's just another form of fit. Um, yeah. I mean, what it, what is an SDR? It's a bunch of fiat, and yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's a bunch of fiat. What
2: do they yeah. attach attach some gold to it too? Possibly.
3: Well, I think I'm right in saying uh, I'm not entirely confident of this, but I think I'm right in saying that uh, anyone um, who uh, is any currency which is part of. Um, uh, the SDR, the rules are that they cannot attach themselves to gold in any that's, way.
2: Yeah, I believe, that's, I believe that's correct. Well, Alistair, in your article, you talked about, uh, you said that um, the banks, the, the, there's going to be a lot of bank failures over the next number of months, you believe. Yeah. But that those that will survive will need to expand bank credit anew to buy up physical, tangible assets instead of their normal financial fare. So I guess by that, you probably would start out with gold and silver, perhaps, or or what? What do you have in mind there when you say financial
3: assets? I I was being slightly cheeky on that because I think the one thing that uh, will go is all financial assets, Mm -hmm. bonds, equities, and all the rest of it. They will be valueless. I mean, well, they're bound to be valueless if you can't value them in a currency which has got no value. Right. So in any any event, the the bond story is – I mean, that's – that is just bad money it's just going to go um, the if you were you know if you, if you sort of want to profit out of this situation then what you've got to look at is not financial assets but real assets so what you do is at this stage you probably um, have gold you might even go to the bank and say right I want a fixed term loan for two years what's the interest rate going to be mm-hmm. Put up whatever collateral da-da-da-da. you're borrowing in fiat you know it's going to be uh valueless when you come to repay it mm-hmm. so you take that fit buy gold sit mm-hmm. on it wait mm-hmm. and then what happens is that when people are in real distress then they will sell you their physical assets for a real knockdown price And uh, there was a very interesting passage, which I'm quoting in my next uh, article, which is due out this uh, Thursday, Thursday Mm -hmm. afternoon, uh, uh, about what happened in Austria. Um, I mean, you know, they had their inflation slightly ahead of the German inflation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And basically, um, you know, people were staying in really smart hotels for nothing. In their mm-hmm. own currencies mm-hmm. um, and when Germany uh, went belly up uh, with their inflation slightly afterwards um, this uh, author uh, quotes a uh, hundred dollars which of course was backed by gold at that time could buy you a street of six-story houses in a <laughs> major city you know so that's the way to be. And yeah. uh, the model, if you like, was a chap called Hugo Stinnes. Now, Hugo Stinnes was known as the inflation king. He borrowed money hand over fist to buy real assets. He bought factories. He bought country states. He bought, um, you know, all sorts of things like that. You know, the, the real stuff, nothing financial. He ended up owning about a quarter of Germany uh, <laughs> when when the whole thing um blew up in uh, the november uh, 1923 unfortunately he didn't leave, live very long to uh, enjoy it because right. he died on the, he died on the operating table having yeah. an operation i think it yeah. was gallstones uh, the following year but it shows you how to play the game yeah. how to rob people right how to, how to work with the inflation to rob people right. of their assets i'm what afraid
2: so, Alistair, do you think there are some banks that are lining themselves up in that regard now? Because I'm thinking that once you hyperinflate and the currency loses its value, they won't be able to print so easily to go out and buy those assets, right?
3: Well, uh, no, they they, uh, they will be able to print so long as there yeah. is a currency. Yeah. Um, and I would think that there are no bankers thinking on these lines yet. Uh-huh. But if I had to nominate a bank which is smart enough to do it, mm-hmm. I think it would probably be Goldman Sachs.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, so there, there are hedge fund guys like Ray Dalio, for example, and a few others, I, I dare say, that are seeing the end game here or at least perceiving it's going to end badly for fiat. Uh, Dalio certainly is, is a believer in gold and, and talks about it all the time. You have to have some. Uh, so I, I would imagine there's, there's people that are playing this game right now. Borrowing in fiat, have been borrowing in fiat, and, and did exactly what, what you suggest they should do, is buy, buy gold and, uh, and then pay back with worthless money in the, past, in the future.
3: I, absolutely. I mean, there will be some people, as you say, who are already beginning to see this light. Now, having said that, I don't think they see it quite as starkly as I do. Mm-hmm. Um, because remember that all the hedge fund boys, all the banks, I mean, they only account in fiat, they only understand fiat, they don't really understand that gold is money. They mm-hmm. understand that gold has hedging properties, if you like, mm-hmm. without t- without telling us what those are. Um, so it's going to be an interesting one. There would be a lot of education and I'm afraid an awful lot of pain yeah. for ordin- ordinary people, which, which does upset me.
2: It's going to be a painful education for ordinary people, which is what we, we try to help people on this show understand what's coming. And, and speaking of uh, bankers that are hedging and so forth, they think they're hedging with paper gold, right? They're borrowing, they're, they're not buying and they're not really taking physical possession of gold. They think they can just go out and buy some futures contracts, some options contracts, and they think they actually own gold. Uh, but there's a lot of people, uh, gold bugs, that are suggesting that maybe one of these days these people are going to wake up and want to and not be content with paper, realizing what's headed their way, and might want to take actually take physical possession. And I believe, if if I'm not wrong, a little bit of that may have started already.
3: Well. Yes, I think that is true, because uh, it's becoming a lot more apparent that um, currency is being debased. Fiat currency is being debased very rapidly, uh, and uh, there's only one thing that can happen, and that is that sound money is, is where you should go. That is the refuge, and therefore people will buy gold. Now, having said that, the banks are accounting in... Fiat, as I said Mm -hmm. earlier, and uh, they are still playing the Fiat game and Mm -hmm. they have got caught out. I mean, what's happened is that uh, the, if you like, bankers are now very, very worried, as I said earlier, about expanding their balance sheets. They want to Mm -hmm. contract. So they're turning around to their bullion desks and saying, we, you know, they're either saying we want out of this game, Mm -hmm. close down your positions, or they're saying reduce your positions. And uh, that means that all the bullion banks at the same time, because this is the feature of contracting bank credit, one banker does it, they all do it, they're all being told at the same time, we want to reduce our exposure in this market, or they're being told, we want out of this market. And this is creating a panic amongst the bullion banks, they're being forced to close down their positions, which is why you've got this extraordinary premium building up in the futures market compared with London. And I think um, when it comes to the price of gold in Mm -hmm. London, I wouldn't say that's the right price either, because the bullion banks are at both ends. And Mm -hmm. uh, you can see that the LBMA and COMEX are trying to collude Mm -hmm. to keep the show on the road and to stop enormous losses accumulating in the hands of some of these banks. And I can tell you there are enormous losses accumulating in one or two of these banks. They really are very serious.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, it's just about a minute and a half left or so, Alistair. Help us understand this. The bankers, the bullion bankers, in order to get out of the business, what do they have to do? They have to close down their short positions. Okay, that means they have to go out and buy gold then to repay their… Exactly, or, or it's they, just paper, or it's just paper contracts. They don't have. Well,
3: to- it's, it's it's paper contracts, but you see that you've you've also got a, another problem now, and that is, as we saw with the April contract, people are standing for delivery, which they can do under Comex uh-huh. rules. Uh-huh. Now, the next active month is June. Now, you might say that uh, with a premium on the June contract compared with spot in London, that nobody in their right minds is going to go and stand for delivery when the June uh-huh. contract. Matures, but Uh that assumes that the right price is the London price. Uh It's not, it's not because of what's happening. The central banks are telling us, for goodness sake, we're going to print as much money as we possibly can, and there's no limit to it. So, we all know what's going to happen to the price of gold. So, if you've got a contract, a June contract, and you want to? Uh, you're wondering what to do with it. You probably stand for delivery. So this is going to be um, a very, very tough time for the COMEX market and the bullion banks that operate in it.
2: So we should uh, we should see some much higher gold prices uh, denominated in dollars and other fiat. I guess is what you're saying.
3: Well, it, yes. I mean, from from every angle. Um, yeah. I mean, basically, what's happened is that the game has changed hugely. I mean, these these boys are quite happy to you know sort of if you like uh, start from a you know an even position run the price up uh, get you know get all the speculators in then crash the price right take the money off them that game stopped and they yeah. got caught
2: short. So you, so you think that game is over now Alistair you think that's coming to an end and, and we're going to see some real sparks flying now in the gold markets. All right. we'll have to leave we'll have to leave it go with that. thank you so much again for being with us Alistair it's always a pleasure thank you for helping us understand these complicated markets and uh, that is it for this week folks but next year Jim Rickards will or next year next week Jim Rickards will be with me Michael Oliver and Chris Taylor of Great Bear Resources until then goodbye and God's blessings to you.
0: Oren Resources is an exploration company defined by its aggressive ambition to find the world's largest mines. Oren has raised over $100 million in this effort and believes it is on to three major discoveries at its projects in Canada and Peru. This year, Oren plans to drill Sombrero, where targets have analogous features to the 10th largest copper mine globally. The company also plans to drill its other substantial base and precious metal opportunities that management believes will be complemented by the strongest bull market in commodities over the last 50 years. Visit AURYNResources.com and subscribe to keep up with the busy year ahead.